Welcome to the podcast. We do recover with Jared Miller, your host. And I'm Dr. Terry Sellers, your co-host. This is a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, about recovery. We want to talk about what successful recovery can look like. Brought to you by Steps Recovery Center and the St. George Hilton Garden Inn. Welcome back. You're listening to episode 10 of We Do Recover. I'm your host, Jared Miller. Today, as always, I'm joined by your co-host and our medical expert, Dr. Terry Sellers. Hello. Hello, everybody. Hello, hello. We got our favorite producer, Sean Denovan. The man, the myth, the the legend. In the house. Is that how they say it? In the house. (laughs) That will work. (laughs) This podcast is being recorded from sunny St. George, Utah. Episode 10 is brought to you by Steps Recovery Centers, where addiction ends and healing begins. Listen, if your loved one needs help, please give them a call. 801-800-8142. Dr. Sellers, how was the drive? Uh, well, the drive was interesting this time. Uh, if you're going to hit me, you didn't hit me with the what's new and good. You, f- you kind of messed me up there, but that's all right. <laughs> uh, what's new and good or bad for me is I totaled my car this week. Get out of here. No, it's true. It's the second car I've totaled in 2020. I think the universe is trying to tell me something. <laughs> Not just a fender bender. Like totaled it. it. No, it's totaled. Both, it's uh, both times. Yes. They're both <laughs> gone. Those cars are gone. So, um, but the new and good part is I, I have a scratch on my wrist and that is it. I mean, it is unbelievable how I, how lucky I got from that. So I feel grateful to be here and I'm happy that we're doing a podcast today and my life's actually good other than that and that that's not even that bad. Glad you got I'm glad you got through that. I got through it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm lucky though. I'll tell you somebody's watching over me. Not uh, not anything I'm doing right. A blessed guy. Yeah. John Denovan. What's what, new and good? What's what's going on in the oh, world of man. Sean Denovan? Well, I'm trying to find the silver lining on my week. It's been one of those weeks. Oh, okay. So I think the silver lining was the funeral that I had to attend yesterday. Oh my gosh. And all the good people that were there. All the friends and family of our friend who passed away. It was a uh, motorcycle accident that killed oh, her. So we no. were actually able to do one of the large, we had, I think we had about 75 bikes going from the church to the grave site. Way cool. All in like a little, cool little thunder run. That's way cool. So yeah. Well, it's a nice to find. Finding the silver lining. Nice to find gratitude in a funeral. Yeah, that's that's a good perspective for sure. What is up with accidents? I don't know. You got into a motorcycle accident. You got into a car accident. Yeah. I'm going to um, start driving super cautious these days. Well, listen, I'm trying to drive more cautious than <laughs> ever, too. <laughs> uh, right on. All right. What do we got? Well, first of all, let me point out something. You said that we are on episode 10, which if you can count did numbers of digits, that's actually two digits. Yes. We're in double digits, baby. We broke the double digits. I can't believe it. I can't believe that we're still doing this. It's only because Sean puts up with us that, that we're still doing this. So uh, <laughs> I'm grateful for that. Uh, I think it's been a fun ride so far. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I can't believe when I look back 10 episodes, we've learned a lot in the first 10. I think we're finding our, our niche rocking and rolling. This one's going to be a little different. Sure. Right? Yeah. I think so we got some different stuff. You guys are, I don't know if people really grasp the concept that we have an addictionologist that joins us here on this podcast, Dr. Terry Sellers. So he's going to, he's going to grace us with some of his knowledge today. And I'm going to chime in a little bit from the perspective of I'm going after my Sudsy, learning a little bit about the counseling side of things. We got Sean here who's going to be our voice of, you know, the, the normies of the people that have never experienced this addiction. What did I call it earlier? The ignorant 
the ignorant the ignorant normal the ignorant <laughs> well, that's you baby the ignorance of society it's good to be you though what i don't know what i'm talking about cool there is that's an old saying ignorance is bliss yeah absolutely so, we're glad you don't know about this thing we yeah. call the disease of addiction yeah for sure so dr sellers let's get it man what what are you going to educate us on today well i've, I've got uh, some stuff that i want to talk about for sure regarding uh, medication assisted treatment Matt so, treatment. Yeah. So that is abbreviated MAT, MAT, and it stands for medication assisted treatment. If you hear me say the word MAT during this uh, podcast, I'm talking about, that's what I'm talking about is medication assisted treatment. I'm not talking about some dude that's sitting here in the studio named Matt. <laughs> um, I was going to make a joke that that's our invited guest today is Matt, but um, <laughs> Matt is, Matt means medication assisted treatment. So I, I wanted to lay some stuff down about. Uh, I just wanted to talk about medication-assisted treatment and kind of hopefully educate some people on things that are going on in the treatment world and in the in the in the treatment field and industry, and uh, really get some uh, really lay down some of my knowledge, hopefully, but then get some perspectives of people that maybe haven't used Matt, and then maybe even somebody who has not used drugs and see what they think about this. Yeah. So it would be um, fun if we could have live call-ins, if we could have people call in, but we're not that far ahead yet. Like we haven't prepared for that. That's not anybody else's fault other than mine and Jared's. So, um, but I want to talk about Matt. So Matt, what is Matt? Matt is, uh, Matt is essentially the use of uh, medications in combination with counseling and behavioral therapies to provide a whole patient approach to the treatment of substance use disorders. When I say whole patient approach, so we talk about we talk about um, the disease of addiction or substance use disorder as a biopsychosocial disease. That breaks down into three components: biology, psychology, and the social aspects of your life. Not quite sociology. That's a different study, but. The social aspects of your life, the psychological aspects of your life, and the biological aspects of your life. Medication-assisted treatment treats only the biological components, right? It's a medication. It goes into your body. It gets into your brain, and it has effects inside of your brain. And that's the biological aspects of addiction, right? The psychological aspects and the social aspects have to still be dealt with or you're not really... Uh, going to help somebody out. So there's nobody, well, you're not really going to completely treat the patient. I mean, you might help somebody out, but you're not going to treat the whole disorder and the whole patient if all you think about is the medical aspects or the biological aspects. Yeah, that's just one component. Right. So yeah. that that's really part of my job is to address the biological aspects. Uh, m most of the places I work, so I work in a number of different treatment centers, and all of the treatment centers have uh, therapists or counselors, and uh, they deal with the psychological aspects and even the social aspects. And then sometimes there's caseworkers or case management specialists that deal with the social aspects as well. If you don't combine those things, you're not treating the disease. You're treating just the biology of the disease, but not the complete disease, because most people think it's not... Um, and we, we might, at the end of this, if we have time left over, we might talk about the, um, maybe the theories of what causes addiction at the end. Yeah, this totally fits with an assignment I got this week in my SUDSI program at oh, UVU, sweet. the theories of 
why somebody becomes an addict and, right. and you're tying in um, just the three com- the three different components you talked about ties into some different theories so right we'll loop that in yeah i think we'll we might get there if i if i don't talk too long yeah <laughs> no, um, i hope i don't talk too long but uh but i got a lot to say about this stuff so anyway if you treat only the biological aspects which is my job you're not treating the disease you're treating a third of the disease, not the psychological and not the social part. So that's where therapy comes in. And that's where, um, you know, sometimes um, kind of masterminding someone's social life, the things they can and can't do. And, the, you know, frankly, as a recovering addict, I just don't have any business in bars anymore. Right. Yeah. Kind of like we talked uh, when Taz Decker joined us he said the only thing I lost was myself. Yeah. Meaning right. His identity. Uh, obviously when you're changing your ways, you're going to lose, hopefully you're going to lose your social circles. Makes it a whole lot easier. Right. Yeah. We've not Eden Raider talk about what do they call it when you move, right? A relocation or a yeah, geographical geographical. So those are some of the different aspects of right. those last two. And that's what, that's exactly what a geographical is, is an attempt to control your social environment. But that in and of itself is just like treating the disease biologically only, right? That's not going to work. Yeah, you got to have all three. It doesn't work very much for, yeah, you treat all three or you're not treating the whole disease. So I think that's the important thing that I want to that that I want to start with is this is a complex disease it's different than a lot of other diseases and it is um, and it's at least threefold in in the approach no expert that I can think of and no governing body like the National Institute of Health or the National Institute of Drug Abuse nobody recommends MAT without counseling and behavioral therapies to go along with it yeah. So Matt is great, but it's in and of itself is not treating the entire disease. So I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the drugs that people abuse because it doesn't. Co- there isn't a Matt treatment for every different substance, right? Right. There's only specific ones, and that's what we're going to dive into. Right. So cool. so I'm going to talk about drugs that are abusable, and then you got to my point right at the end of this little discussion, which is great that you're ahead of me. Uh, and not uncommon, by the way. But um, okay, so alcohol, right? Alcohol is the most abused substance worldwide. Well, yeah, because it's socially acceptable. Well, it's legal, and it's socially not acceptable. only just legal. It's really right. It's it's not socially acceptable even. It's more than that. Like it's woven into the fabric of our lives. Uh, the best yeah. commercials in the Super Bowl are almost always alcohol commercials. Listen, when I first went into treatment, I had this friend named Kimberly Woolsey, and we became friends. And Oh, you just w- gave up her anonymity? Well, she's very public about Matter of fact, she might come on the podcast. Oh, okay, great. She'd be okay with it. All right. So uh, we're, we're, we're uh, discussing. Thanks for calling me out on that. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> we're discussing, uh, you know, I said to her, oh, you know, I, here I am naive. I'm like, oh, alcohol, that's not that big of a deal. You know, try coming off of uh, opiates and little do I know alcohol can kill you. Right. Opiates don't. Right. And then she points out every time I go into a gas station, I get triggered. Right. It's all over the place. No question. Yeah. No question. It's so, it's so pervasive in our lives that tons of things are, every concert you go to is at least partially sponsored by an alcohol company. And let me just give a shout out real quick. She has like almost a decade Oh, I made you feel bad. Sober. You, you totally I'm did. So sorry. So she's she's a rock star. Yeah. Good. Let's get yeah. her on the podcast. Let's do it. She can defend herself. <laughs> okay. 5.8% of United States adults have have 
criteria that would get them into the category of alcohol use disorder. Hmm. Now, if you want to sit down on your calculator and do 350 million people and figure out what 5.8% of that is, I will tell you that's about 14.4 million U.S. adults meet the criteria for alcohol use disorder. That's a lot. Do you think we're going to get anywhere near that many people into treatment ever? I mean, I hope. Yeah, that would be lovely. But right, that's we don't. That's not going to happen, right? Yeah. There's plenty of people out there that need treatment that are not getting it. But um, it is twice as common in men as it is in women. Interestingly enough, about 7.6 percent of United States adult men meet the criteria for alcohol use disorder, whereas only about 4.1 percent of U.S. female U.S. women uh, meet that criteria. Interesting. So, okay, that's alcohol briefly. We know a lot about it, right? Because it's in our face every day. Second category of drugs that are abusable are opioids. So those are painkillers. Typically, they used to all be derived from the opium plant, from from the poppy plant, which is is where they make opium from. Um, There are now synthetic opiates that are not specifically derived from the poppy, but they do the same thing and they bind to the same receptors in the brain. Common opiates, what are some common opiates? Anybody think of anything? Man, Percocet. Sure. Dilaudid. Yep. I mean, the the one that was the, that created the pandemic was, I mean, Oxycontin. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, Oxycontin is widely blamed for the beginning of this pandemic. Yeah, that's my generation. Sure. We're the generation of, of, of that terrible right. drug. Right. Yep. Those are I, some. I read a book called Painkiller once about the Oxycontin, about that company and all the stuff that they did. And Wow. I get sick just just even hearing it because of, anyways. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. So uh, I'll tell you the ones. John, you got anything? Anything that you know of that's an opiate? Oxycontin is like the number one on my mind. Yeah, okay. Uh, Mainly because Rush Limbaugh. Okay, right. That was forever. That was like, what, 15 years ago? Right. Plus that? Yeah. Because I remember, um, I actually remember listening to that live when he came on the air. Yeah. Because the radio station I worked at. And then Percocet. And anything beyond that is just kind of. I, I don't know. Okay. I don't well, know. let me fill you in on a few. Ibuprofen? That, no. Uh, let me feel. No, but, no, but it wasn't a bad guess. I mean, that's for sure a painkiller. No, but, but too much of that is like bad for your liver. No so question. I have no, no idea. question. Uh, um, ibuprofen is not an opiate, but it is a painkiller. So you're not way off track there. But let me name a couple you guys haven't even thought of that you should have for sure. What's the big one that people shoot out on the oh, streets? Yeah. Heroin. Heroin. Heroin is an opiate. Oh, that's uh, right. That was like a legal drug a uh, hundred years ago, right? It, it was. It was. Here's pres- your prescription of pres- some heroin. Go yeah. home and yeah, guess, have fun with the kids. Guess what? <laughs> they never bugged the doctor after that, except for for refills. Weird. You never get complaints. <laughs> of, you never get compla- complaints about heroin. Right? Wasn't that? Didn't that start in like the Vietnam years? Right? Because they were over there. And- no, I think. This is before that? Sigmund Freud. Yeah, I think, to, I think we're going back 100 years. Used oh, to okay. do cocaine, right. used to use cocaine as a medication and used to use heroin as a medication. Well, yeah, that, that was called Coca-Cola. Right. You know, you, you get your heroin <laughs> oh, yeah. medication and then you get your Coca-Cola for the kids. That's a speedball. That's what we call a speedball right there. This wow. is about, what, uh, 1908? There we yeah. go. Yeah. Hey. We've come a long way. You're killing it over there. Boom. You're killing it over there. <laughs> um, okay. So heroin is a very common opiate, right? Um, wait, what did you just bring up? Because you triggered something in my brain that I want to know talk in, about. In Vietnam, it was like big because yeah, they were was, over there. and That wasn't the thing that huh. triggered me. Something triggered me that I wanted to m- mention something about, but I can't remember what it was. Okay. Anyway, fentanyl. 
Oh yeah, that's the killer. Fentanyl is the he is responsible, we think, at least for some of the rise in opiate overdose deaths recently. They're now cutting fentanyl into into uh, heroin because, first of all, fentanyl can be made really cheaply, particularly in uh, China. It's made super cheap, and it's more potent than heroin is. That's scary. So if you cut some fentanyl into your heroin, it's got more bang for the buck without costing more bucks, which is why people are dying, right? Yeah. Uh, okay, it is the most opioids are the most common class of drugs in overdose deaths in the United States. Last year in the U.S., there was about 70,000 overdose deaths, and about 42,000 of those were from uh, an opiate class, a lot of them heroin, but a lot of them prescription pain pills as well. So that's people die from that, right? People yeah. don't die uh, directly from alcohol overdose very often. When people die from alcohol, it's from the long-term effects and it damaging your heart, alcohol damaging your heart, alcohol damaging your liver. They die from those things, but they don't really die from an overdose. Alcohol poisoning is not as common as overdose in, on opiates. Okay. Next class, benzodiazepines. Anybody know a benzodiazepine? Yeah, Xanax. Yep. Uh, I think that's kind of the new, like, it, it seems like in the younger generation, that's the, the next pandemic if you asked me if it's not already started. I don't think you're way off base. I think you're, I think you got something there. Just observing so, and reporting, just observing and reporting. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're, you're on, you're on track for sure. Benzodiazepines uh, are typically used for anxiety and or sleep. The two kind of major uses for benzodiazepines. Uh, common ones are Clonopin, Xanax, Ativan, and Valium. Those are kind of the four that everybody knows about. There's a drug called Tamazepam, which is, so any drug that has a generic name that ends in PAM is a benzodiazepine. So Valium is diazepam, and Ativan is lorazepam, and Xanax is alprazolam, although that's not a PAM, that's a lamb. So you got to keep aware of what the medical name is compared to the generic the generic name, name yeah for like sure. valium that doesn't end with pam valium valium pam. Yeah. wait a second what yeah sorry if i threw you off there yeah so i guess that means paying attention to the doctor if he says i'm going to assign you i mean how often do doctors say the medical yeah. name of the medication compared to what the normal person's going to under because what, what's valium called valium is diazepam no idea if you said right. valium yeah. i'd be like oh yeah valium yeah, okay valium. that's it's right. a sleeping medication whatever right. But if you would have said the other one, I would have, would have been like, I have no idea what you're talking what about. Is it? Right. Yeah, sure. Load me up. So well, basically, so you want to go into your doctor's office and say, listen, I want to stay away from Pam. And he's going to look at you like, I can't help Pam? you in your personal life. Who's you're Pam? like, no, I'm talking Wait, about the Loraza Pams, the Diaza Pams. Oh, okay. The <laughs> secretary's name, Pam. Yeah. Stay away from her too, by the way. <laughs> She's dangerous, that secretary. So uh, so these are these are fun. This is fun stuff. And these are good points. Is uh, Sean points out something that um, we don't always consider in early recovery is we are responsible for our own recovery and therefore you have to get somewhat educated. Mm -hmm. Like you like Sean said, let's assume now Sean's not in recovery because he's not a he doesn't have the same disease I have or you, or Jared has. But um, let's assume that uh, somebody in early recovery goes into their doctor and they say, I'm going to give you diazepam. You have to know as a, as the patient, you have to know that that's something to avoid. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think most addicts would know that they avoid Valium, but 
do they really know they avoid diazepam? That's a great point. Well, is that a conversation you have with the doctor? I mean, if you're if you're years after and you're like, hey, I'm a recovering addict, is it, is that a conversation that you have with your doctor? If you are wanting to close all of the back doors, that is a conversation you have with your doctor. If people are still wanting to leave a little possibility open, they're not quite totally committed to recovery. Yeah, sometimes you don't have that discussion. With I your figured doctor. if I, if if you're committed to the recovery side and you're seeing a new doctor, it's like, by the way, here's who I am. You know, this is a me on the streets in the gutter five years ago, and right. I had all these issues. This is what I was addicted to. Uh, you, as a doctor, I'm hoping that you prescribe stuff that's not going to send me back there again. Yeah, people people don't always have that conversation, but that's such a good point. It's a conversation that's really important to have because. Uh, but, but that we're scared of, that we're afraid of having. And that is if I tell my doctor, I'm an opiate addict and then I go to him with a bone sticking out of my arm, I'm afraid he's not going to give me any pain pills. And listen, opiate addicts need to do everything they can to avoid pain pills, but that does not mean that opiate addicts have to suffer through horrible pain. Right. I, uh, I've, I've said this on this podcast before, but I'm having major oral surgery on Tuesday. Right. I'm not taking any, any opiates for that, for pain relief for that. I'm just not going to, but if somebody wants to take my gallbladder out, they better give me some pain pills. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I'm not, I, just because I'm an opiate addict, I don't need to suffer. Yeah. And right? I think, I think too, maybe, is that the disease of the brain that maybe leaves those back doors open to oh, sometimes? Yeah. yeah just because not, yeah. It's, it's like Sean said, if you're being proactive and, and Taz touched on this when he was here, forward thinking right? Forward thinking, like seeing, being proactive and having that conversation with your doctor and letting mm -hmm. them know, look, here's my concerns. If I come in and I need to have my, you know, liver taken out or whatever, right? that obviously, yeah, let's go ahead and pursue that avenue. But if not, yeah, keep me as safe as possible. Yeah. I, I have a patient right now who lives in back East and I'm not going to give any details of the patient away. You're not going to say their name like I do. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not getting on you. I have a patient back East who has a, and he was out here for treatment and he has a severely messed up shoulder and he had surgery and the surgery went poorly and he's got all kinds of debris in his shoulder joint and stuff. Ugh. And I keep having to talk to doctors back East about him because they're, he goes in and is honest with them and says, I'm an opiate addict. And then they won't give him much in the way of pain relief. Well, if he's an opiate addict who has recently taken opiates, he probably has some tolerance and he's going to need more pain pills than, than somebody who hasn't taken an opiate in a long time. You give Sean a, you give Sean a dilated and he'd be like drooling on himself on the floor over there. Right? <laughs> that's yeah. just a Tuesday for me anyway. Yeah, just, well, without the medication. That's a good point. <laughs> that's yeah. a good point. So, but you give this guy who's first of all, an opiate addict. And second of all, because of a bunch of recent stuff that's happened with his shoulder has been on opiates now for months in a row and has redeveloped tolerance. You give him one Percocet every four hours and it doesn't do anything for him, right? So these are conversations that we need to have, but they're tough to have because we're afraid we're going to have to suffer through pain. Yeah. So later on in recovery, most people have those. But early in recovery, when people are sort of committed but don't really understand the depth of their commitment, they don't always have those conversations, for sure. 
That's crazy, and and that there's got it. That's a very fine line, I'm sure, right? So yep. it's a good thing we get we have these amazing medical experts that can walk that fine line. So we're going to jump more back into this conversation. We're going to pick it up in part two. Real quick, I want to give a little community awareness. If you guys are in the St. George area, Southern Utah area, we have um, Hooked on Life is doing a softball tournament to raise some money to get people into recovery. The Home Run Derby starts tonight. And then tomorrow starts the actual softball tournament. Is that in Cedar City? Yeah, up in Cedar City. Yep. So yeah. go to their Facebook page, Hooked on Life, yeah. and, and check that out. little community resource for you guys. Also, we're starting, and I, I'm trying to get your brother to be the team captain, uh, a volleyball tournament locally. Oh, yeah. So every Friday night, get together teams of six. Oh, we're going to yeah. have a little volleyball tournament, right? It's free. doesn't cost you any money. So those are a couple of community updates. Thank you guys for listening to part one. Stay tuned as we jump into part two and we get some more of the uh, medically assisted treatment from Dr. Terry Sellers. You are listening to We Do Recover with Jared Miller and co-hosted by Dr. Terry Sellers. We'll be right back after this short break with more of We Do Recover with Jared Miller. Sponsored by Steps Recovery Center and the Hilton Garden Inn. I'm Desmond Lomax, one of the clinical executives here at Steps Recovery. And once you become of the Steps family, you're just a part of the Steps family. A lot of us have overcome substances, overcome addiction, and now we're able to help other people. Second of all, we're also going to help you in a way where you can afford to be helped. Third of all, we're going to give you the same quality that many organizations are charging two to three times. And it's more about you than it is about our organization. We welcome you back to We Do Recover with Jared Miller, co-hosted by Dr. Terry Sellers. Brought to you by Steps Recovery Center and the St. George Hilton Garden Inn. And now with part two of our podcast, Jared Miller and Dr. Terry Sellers. And we're back. You're listening to episode 10. This is part two. In this episode, Dr. Sellers, is he's dropping some education on us. He's talking oh, to us about medication-assisted treatment. And we've touched on alcohol. We've touched on opiates. We've touched on benzodiazepines. Yep. That's a long word. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a long word. We're going to jump. Benzos is fine, frankly, because that's <laughs> what everybody else calls it. Like on the street, nobody calls them benzodiazepines. Now, right. If you can spell it, you'll win Scrabble. Yeah, for there sure. You go. So the voices that you're hearing, of course, we got Dr. Sellers, our medical expert. Uh, I'm filling in. I'm going through the Sudsy program, so I'm doing my best to look at this from a counseling perspective. I like it. And uh, just an addict in recovery, really trying to spread some hope and awareness. We got Sean Denovan, our producer. We're using him as the guinea pig as our normie. Or the outside ignorant of, normie. The, his words. Don't judge me, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's get, get back into it. So we touched on some of those. Okay. So I want to, um, I got a, I, I spent way longer on that introductory <laughs> stuff than I meant to, but it's fun conversation. We had good conversation, Absolutely. so I enjoyed it. Um, but let me breeze through the rest of the classes of abusable medications really quickly. As for benzodiazepines, they one of the things you also need to know is they have an additive effect on respiratory depression. So mm -hmm. when people die from an opioid overdose, they die from respiratory depression. And the deadliest combination of medications, of two medications in the United States is methadone and benzodiazepines. And then second is um, any other class of opiates and benzodiazepines because they add together 
to form more respiratory depression than either of them separately. Yeah, that's a so, common thing. Mixing opiates with benzodiazepines end up with deaths. Yep. And we always get, as a physician, if I ever were to prescribe that, I always get a letter from somebody. Okay. Whether it's the state, whether it's the patient's insurance company, they always say, hey, what are you doing with, uh, I mean, they don't word it this way, but what are you doing prescribing benzos with opiates? Yeah. So yeah, Part of my recovery, I didn't do a ton of mat treatment, but I did have some unsuccessful runs at methadone. And I remember going into the clinic and one of the things that they'd always say is if you test positive for benzos, you're, you're gone. You're yeah, done. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's in keeping with the fact that benzos and methadone are the deadliest combo in the U S for sure. Okay. Uh, another, uh, Oh, one more thing. 2.2% of adults in the United States qualify or fit under the category of benzodiazepine use disorder. That's going to be about, um, Seven million people, maybe. No, maybe not that much. But um, I can't do the math real quick on the radio or on the podcast in my head, so I'm going to leave it alone. Um, cannabinoids is another category of abusable medications. Now, interestingly, cannabinoids, uh, which is the uh, active ingredient in THC, right? Oh, okay. These are becoming more and more acceptable in the United States. I looked at Sean and I was like, cannabinoid. Again, back to the doctor term versus the yeah. street or, yeah, you know. Like, what's Canab got to do with it? I mean, it's a cute Can- little town. Canab's a good town. <laughs> Canab is a very good Just town. Dragging them down. And the Jeez. people that live there are called cannabinoids. <laughs> uh, no, probably not. We shouldn't call we shouldn't call people from cannab cannabinoids. Uh, interestingly, about ten percent of United States adults regularly use can- cannabis. It so, doesn't surprise me, especially and, with states and that number's going up for yeah. sure, right? Uh, it's higher. It's higher in Colorado, uh, which was one of the first and early states to no pun uh, intended. adopt it. Higher what was the pun? You said it's higher, higher in Colorado. Colorado. Ah, <laughs> I'm, I'm more clever than I even know. <laughs> wow. Thank you very much. Uh, that's becoming more widely accepted as a form of this. And this always bothers me. Recreation. Yeah. Right? We do, we have recreational use. Didn't recreation used to be when you went out on your, like, on your four-wheeler, and that's recreation, right? Recreation used to be I'm going down to the rec center to play basketball, not sit on the couch and smoke dope and eat Cheetos. Right. But apparently they call it recreational use, so that's recreation. Another category, barbiturates, not common today. Uh, And I'm not going to spend hardly, I'm not going to spend any time on that. Stimulants are a big category that we haven't talked about. So stimulants include cocaine, methamphetamine, and interestingly enough, almost all of the widely used ADHD medications. So Adderall is a stimulant. Um, Next category is hallucinogens. Hmm. Can you think of a hallucinogen? Hallucinogen means a medication that causes hallucinations. Oh, LSD. Yeah. See, I know that one. Boom. Sean. And then what? Shrooms? Well, you're oh, killing shrooms. it. Um, you got two. What, I, what else have I learned by watching the truth Super is, Troopers? Um, the truth is I've, only got, <laughs> I've only got four written down on my page. You got two of them so far. Oh, wow. Keep well, going, buddy. You I got did two more. Dennis, was it? No. Who's who's the LSD guy? Uh, the Dennis 60s. Hopper? No, 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 no. From the 60s. Um, Leary. Leary? Oh, yeah. Timothy Leary. I met him at Lollapalooza years ago. You did? Yeah. Wow. I, I He's like, kind of a folk hero. Oh, he was out there yeah out there (laughs) i think i'll bet that's true isn't there a new one that like people are going to different countries to drink it's some type of 
it's a hallucinogenic and they go to these third world countries and pay thousands of dollars and to go on a spiritual journey and uh, some like cultures and religions use it. Man, and Native Americans know. have, uh, don't they have a, well, like peyote. First yeah. of all, peyote is a, is more of a, uh, an opiate. Oh yeah. Hmm. Ayahuasca. That was the one. It's a hallucinogen. You're talking about hallucinogens. I guess there's a TikTok challenge now where kids drink Benadryl, a whole bunch of it. To, Get out of here. To really? hallucinate. That's what they're saying. Wow. Now. Interesting. What is up with these kids? The pod, the, what was it called? The little the tide, tide, pod. tide pod challenge. The now cinnamon, the, the cinnamon challenge. You remember God, that? Get, get out the, and the play tide, some basketball. I think only one person actually went to the ER with the Tide Pod thing. Somebody, only one person actually got hurt. Really? But yeah. The new one now is, you know, drink half a bottle of Benadryl and wow. you'll see flying ponies or yeah. something. I don't know. Get out and play basketball. You're get out right. and play basketball. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Come Do on, something. Man. Stop drink. Stop trying to put weird stuff into your mouth and swallow it. <laughs> Jeez. Um, so, okay. Inhalants. Oh, wait. Let me name a couple more hallucinogens real quick. PCP is a hallucinogen. Mm. Remember people used to take it. Oh, I, I thought that was just called, like the Hulk medication where it just makes you all crazy and you can run well, around and. Makes you crazy. That's for sure. You end up running around crazy and you have super strength and you're naked. That's, Listen. That, those are the stories I hear about PCP. And it's because you're. You are hallucinating and seeing things that aren't real. You know what's so, crazy? When I was when I was playing college football, I literally knew some guys that would do PCP, just small amounts before games. Do you remember the uh, crazy? Nick, you remember the old nickname for PCP? It used to be called mm. some kind of dust. Angel dust. Yeah, it used to be called angel dust. Yeah, yeah for sure. Okay, crazy. move on to what last category is inhalants. You guys can name some inhalants because as a kid, even. Air duster, sniffing glue, like the paint, fumes out of paint, paint and, and like paint thinner oh. and gasoline, and then. But now today, people aren't using really gasoline or paint or paint thinner. It's either air duster or whippets. Yeah, and then um, stupid. Uh, well, that seems to be. I've seen that but, kind of associated more of like with the homeless. It's kind of the, the cheap high where yeah. you get paint yeah, yeah, or yeah. or whatnot. Right. And uh, you guys saw the the last Mad Max movie. Yeah. Yes. Where they, were, where they were spraying them in the mouths with, yes. with silver paint. Yeah. Right. To get them yep. amped up. Yeah. Something. Yeah. So that those are inhalants. Um, typically, uh, either di in this day and age, duster like the like the air duster thing for like cleaning keyboards of uh, computers and that sort of thing, or whippets, which come with which whipped cream, basically the little things, the little CO two cartridges. So, uh, okay. Let's get to Matt, because we haven't really gotten to Matt yet. And I was going to say real quick, if you're listening to this and you've abused any of those, you don't have to live that life anymore. Oh, thank you. Right? Like, you, there's a better way. There's a better side to this thing. And it's about this podcast. We do recover. Dr. Sellers is going to talk about the medication-assisted treatment for these different, uh, what, chemical abuse, things that people abuse. Um, first of all, thanks, brain for, went thanks for bringing me back down. Because I don't know if anybody noticed, but there is a thing called euphoric recall. Hmm. And I don't know if you've noticed how animated I've been when I'm talking about this. <laughs> well, a, you're passionate about your field, too. A, it's my field of expertise, yeah. right? That's but, why I take but it. But B, we all are capable of euphoric recall and remembering like how like people don't keep using these drugs because they make them feel crappy. They started using and kept using because they made him feel good. Now, in the end, it doesn't work very well for most people, right? Most people give up when they're either in jail or, or they have to go to treatment for some other reason. But It's funny you bring that up. They talked about the behavioral theory. 
and, and one of the big concepts behind the behavioral theory of why people become addicts is because the positive association to that, that experience in their brain versus a negative one. So that's why throughout kind of that, you'd hear me say like, Oh, that's stupid. That's disgusting. Because I, I try my best to right. Have that association be a negative one. Right. Right. Yeah. Sure. Good point. For sure. Uh, And so do I, I mean, that's really when I, I don't get cravings hardly anymore at all, but when I do, I have a negative thing attached. Whenever I get a craving, I see two DEA agents that were standing on my front porch and that, that kind of knocks the craving down pretty quickly. Right. I don't ever need to see those guys again. I'm sure they're perfectly wonderful human beings in real life, but on my front porch, they were not, I didn't consider them wonderful human beings. Okay. Let's talk about Matt and I uh, have used plenty of time. So I'm going to breeze through the early part of Matt because there's really two things with Matt that are very important. So, there are the mat is the use of medications along with counseling and behavioral therapies to treat the whole patient basically right so there are and these are fda approved medications okay what is considered mat is only fda approved medications there are some other things we use occasionally that are off label but that's not really considered medication assisted treatment they have to be fda approved for the treatment of substance use disorder, some, right. some sort of substance use disorder. And I'm going to list the first kind of three of them really quickly. Now we've talked about all the categories of medications that are abusable that right now there's only medication assisted treatment for alcohol and opiates. Like you mentioned earlier, there is no medication assisted treatment for benzos or for, methamphetamine um, or, or for, cannabis yeah, or, or for any of the stimulants yeah. or for THC, right? There's no medication assisted treatment for that. There's only medication assisted treatment for alcohol use disorder and opioid use disorder. So let's talk about alcohol use disorder first. There's three medications that are FDA approved for uh, treatment of alcohol use disorder. Acamprosate. Acamprosate, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on. It's got a um, brand name of Campril, if people have ever heard of that. Campril blocks transmission of certain neurotransmitters in the brain and seems to curb cravings in people that have alcohol use disorder. Um Fairly successful medication actually has been shown not to really be effective in anyone who is not receiving psychosocial therapy and or support. Again, you need all three. By itself, it doesn't yeah. seem to have any effectiveness at all. Interesting. It doesn't, uh, doesn't affect the outcome. Um, one of the main problems is people can get suicidal on it. It's a very rare side effect, but it does happen. Um, and obviously if someone gets suicidal, they stop immediately and that is not going to be the medication for them. But yeah, that's the main drawback to that one. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that one. Disulfiram. No one's ever, you never heard of that. I'll bet. No, never. Okay. How about ant abuse? I have heard of ant abuse. Yeah, I have. Okay. Ant abuse blocks an enzyme that is used to metabolize alcohol. So you don't get the same effect. You do, well, you do well. You do get the same effect, but it builds up in your system quicker than most people, and you get sick. You get really oh. violently ill if you t- if you drink. Again, it gives you that negative association it's instead the, of the positive one right. that you're looking for. That's the negative association. If you happen to drink on uh, ant abuse, you will get really really sick. Hmm. Um, I've known a couple of people that that's not true for, but there's always um, exceptions to the rules, right? right? But for most people. And I'll tell you the main the main thing that I use ant abuse for is building trust in relationships. 
So if you have, if your wife suddenly doesn't trust you at all anymore because you've been drinking for years and lying about it. Yeah. And then she watches you take an antabuse pill every morning. She knows you're committed. She knows you're not going to drink because you can't drink and lie about it mm. while you're lying. <clears throat> good point. Excuse me. While you're lying, you'll also be thrown up yeah, good and, point. and sweating and just in agony. So that's the main, that's the main reason I use it is if somebody needs to rebuild trust in a spouse or a, some sort of relationship. That's cool. Uh, okay. Final one is naltrexone. Naltrexone comes in two forms. For alcohol. For alcohol. We're really? still talking about alcohol. Huh. Yeah. Initially, so it comes in two forms. There's a tablet and there's a, an injection called Vivitrol. A lot of people have heard of Vivitrol. The interesting thing about Vivitrol is when they were doing the trials for Vivitrol to get it FDA approved. Yeah. So to get a, med, a medication FDA approved in the United States costs on average $2.6 billion to a, bring a drug to market. With a B, billion. Yeah, two points, what did I say? $2.6 billion. Okay. Wow. Um, this is why medications are so expensive in the United States, but it's also why we have a slightly more safe, safer drug supply than the rest of the world is you have got to do studies before you ever get to bring a drug to market to prove that A, your drug works, B, it doesn't kill people or harm people. And so when they were doing the studies for Vivitrol in the U.S., and this was 25 years ago, they thought 25 years ago there were more people with alcohol use disorder than there were opiate use disorder patients. And so you know what a drug company's job is, right? Sell their medication. Right. They're, it's a company. Their job is to make money. They're not putting up $2.6 billion. To lose money. Yeah. Right. Right. And what that $2.6 billion buys you essentially is a seven-year patent on your medication so that nobody else can make it in that time. That gives you seven years to recoup your investment of $2.6 billion. Hmm. So that's why drugs are initially really expensive. And then when they lose the patent, guess what? Everybody else can make it. Generic companies can make it. And it gets way cheaper because right. the generic companies didn't spend the $2.6 billion to start. Yeah. Right? But So you have seven years to um, to recoup your $2.6 billion. Anyway, when they were doing the trials on the Vivitrol, what they found was that, um, or what they thought was there were more al people with alcohol use disorder than opiate use disorder. So they did their initial trials on people with alcohol use disorder. What they found in folks with alcohol use disorder is that it decreases cravings, decreases number of drinking days, decreases number of heavy drinking days, increases lengths of sobriety, and overall kind of gives, um, folks with alcohol use disorder, this kind of general sense of well-being. And I think that comes from, listen, if you're spending your whole day craving alcohol, that's not as good a day as if you're not really thinking about it. Then yeah. you can focus on other things. And so- Helps you get back to life, helps you get back to your job, helps you pay right. attention to your family. Right. Quiets the noise in your head. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. So they, um, so when they first came out with it, the first they first came out with it for the indication of alcohol use disorder. Mm -hmm. Now, as physicians, we knew that was going to work for opiate use disorder because naltrexone is an opiate blocker. It goes into your brain, binds to the same receptors that all opiates do and blocks them, doesn't turn them on. And therefore the alcohol and or the opiate. Right. Can't. Well, forget the alcohol because I'm talking about opiates for a second. Opiates can't bind. Right. Right. So you can you can take naltrexone take an opiate, you get no benefit. You get nothing out of the opiate at all. You don't get a buzz. You don't get pain relief. You don't get anything. So, um, so they first came out with it for alcohol use disorder. Doctors started using it for opiate use disorder. And then that company has gone back and proven that it also works for opiate use disorder. So now 
the when it wasn't approved for opiate use disorder, we still doctors still used it. It's just that the company can't advertise that they work for opiate use disorder. They can't make that claim. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I've gotten, uh, we have, I don't know, six or seven minutes left. Transition into opiates. Let's get the and, uh, and right? I'm not to the meat of what I wanted to talk about yet today. <laughs> <laughs> I yapped way too much. I apologize. Okay. So, um, let's talk about, so those are the three medications used for alcohol, acamprosate or campril, disulfiram, antabuse, naltrexone, which comes in a pill and Vivitrol shot form. Now for opiates. Well, first of all, for sure, naltrexone is going to work for opiates because it's an opiate blocker. So that comes in the same two forms, pill and shot, right? Um, when people think of MAT, medication-assisted treatment, they don't think of Vivitrol very often. They always think of, there's two real, there's two things they think of when they think about MAT. Yeah. Tell me what they are, my friend. So. I'll put you on the spot. Suboxone. Yeah, suboxone. And, uh, which is buprenorphine. Right. And then where there's a different form of suboxone too, right? Subutex. Right. They're kind of one and, in the same. And, and one just has a different, those, right? Okay. And then, and then methadone. What you did, methadone. Yeah, methadone. Right. right. Those are the things people think about. Those are the two most controversial ones for sure. Absolutely. And I think we need to spend the remainder of the time on that. Um, so suboxone contains two ingredients, buprenorphine and naloxone. Naloxone is essentially naltrexone. It is a blocker, it's an opiate blocker, but buprenorphine binds to an opiate receptor with a greater affinity than naloxone does. So buprenorphine, naloxone won't bind to an opiate receptor in the presence of buprenorphine. Interesting. But if you take way too much naloxone, then the naloxone can take over. Okay, now that's not very necessary because the buprenorphine block binds to the receptor and with a greater affinity than any other opiate does. Right. So if I, if I take that and then I take an opiate trying to have the effect of getting high or whatever, right. It's not going to work. You don't. That's exactly right. It yeah. can't bind to the receptor. Yeah. If there's enough buprenorphine around. Right. It takes probably, it takes about eight milligrams of buprenorphine to block 50% of the opiate receptors in your brain and 16 milligrams blocks about 95% of the opiate receptors in your brain. So if you are on 16 milligrams of buprenorphine, there's very few receptors left to be bound to. You can never get 100% of opiate receptors bound. There's always molecules coming off and going on to the opiate receptor. So you can never get to 100%. Uh, the highest you probably could get would be 99%, right? So if you have 95 to 99% of those receptors blocked, it doesn't matter how much heroin you use, you're not going to get high, basically. Right, which is a good thing. My concern is, at what point did we decide to use, because both those two that we just mentioned, Suboxone, right, and Methadone, can be abused. They, they, they're addictive substances in and of themselves. And so... I think we had a caller call in uh, Amanda from Logan that said, at what point does it just become replacing one for another? And you had a great answer. And that's a question. That's definitely a great question, right? Those two drugs themselves, methadone and suboxone or buprenorphine, both bind to opiate receptors and turn them on. Turning on an opiate receptor means you can get a little buzz out of those things, maybe even a decent buzz, right? So is it replacement? Yeah, I want to I want to address that for sure, but I want to talk about what makes people high. Okay. Rapid onset makes people high. And short acting makes people high. The quicker it gets to you, the 
better the high. So for those of us that are trying to get the most high we can get, we find ways to make it quicker, right? We don't, people don't take an Oxycontin and swallow it. Yeah. They chew it up or they smoke it or they, right. Have various ways of consuming it. Heroin. You don't take heroin and swallow it. Oh no, you inject it and it gets right to your vein and goes straight to your brain and all of a sudden hits you like this and you get a bigger sort of bang for your buck as far as getting high goes, right? Rapid onset gets you more high than slow onset and then, um, and then how quickly it, um, um, how long it stays in your system also has a little bit to do with that high, right? So if I'm understanding correctly, the reason why these are looked at as treatments is because they don't, they don't have that pow impact. Right. Right. And so it gives your, your body a better chance to absorb it or last longer. And also I know it helps with withdrawal symptoms. It helps with cravings. Those are two important points, really important points, because what you don't want in your, in treating someone is you don't want blood levels of the medication you're using to treat. You don't want them to go up and down and up and down and up and down. Mm -hmm. You want them to be kind of steady the half-life a half-life means how long it takes to get rid of half of the medication the half-life of buprenorphine is 36 hours if you take if you take eight milligrams of buprenorphine right now tomorrow night four of those milligrams are still in your system wow so there's not a lot of fluctuation as far as the uh, as far as blood levels and then the half-life of uh, methadone varies between 60 and 100 hours and so um it's variable in each human, but rarely shorter than 60 hours, although there are some rapid metabolizers of methadone, but usually 60 to 100 hours. Because they're so steady, the high is not nearly as impactful. So the I chance- disagree when people say you can't get high off of Suboxone or methadone. I've yeah. seen people high. Right. And there is the controversy. Now we're about out of time, but there's the controversy in it is that, yes, you are using a medication that binds to the same receptors and turns those receptors on, which is what causes the high. But they're not it's not quite it's definitely not the same powerful high as you can get off a of heroin or even an Oxycontin. Yeah. And that's why they're looked at as good forms of treatment. Dr. Sellers, thank you so much for coming on. You've we've learned a lot about mat treatment, yeah. and of course, in future podcasts, we're we, going we to talk to our guests yeah. because there's a lot of there's a lot of opinions around this topic. No question. So you set us up for success to understand it. In future podcasts, we're going to talk about people's opinions, my right. opinion, your opinion, and our guests' opinion. Thank you guys for tuning in. Join us next week for episode 11. Thank you guys so much. Shout out to the Hilton Garden Inn. That's right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on We Do Recover with Jared Miller. Help us spread our message of hope. Like, comment, and share. If you have any topics or ideas for future shows, please share that on our Facebook page. That Facebook page is We Do Recover with Jared Miller. If you or a loved one needs help, please reach out to us. Again, thank you for listening. Brought to you by Steps Recovery Center and the St. George Hilton Garden Inn. This has been a production from a podcast studio.